This episode of Pop Health Week is sponsored by Health Innovation Media. Health Innovation Media brings your brand narrative alive both on the ground and in the virtual space for major trade show conference and innovation summits via our signature pop-up studio. Connect with us at www.popupstudio.productions. Welcome everyone, I'm Greg Masters, the producer and co-host of the show and publisher of ACOWatch.com. And joining me in the virtual studio today are my colleagues Fred Goldstein, President of Accountable Health LLC, a Jacksonville, Florida-based consulting firm and co-founder and lead host of Pop Health Week, and Nick Vanderhaden, MD, aka Dr. Nick, the Managing Director of Incremental Healthcare. On today's second COVID-19 update, we get a general market overview and then look into what Fred and Dr. Nick are up to in the safe reopening space. But before I turn it over to Fred and Nick, here's the latest data reported out from the Center for System Science and Engineering at Johns Hopkins University as of August 11th, 2020. The global picture presents with a total confirmed case count of 20,188,678, with deaths reported at 738,668, while in the we're number one U.S., the total confirmed case count surpassed the 5 million mark, clocking in at 5,138,850, a 25% share of the global case count, with reported deaths at 164,480, which is a 22% global share. Unfortunately, in the crossfire of competing narratives due to the absence of purposeful federal leadership that educates the public and thus gets us in front of and eventually stops the pandemic, via proven public health measures, we find ourselves in a COVID-19 balancing act, often ping-ponging between the agendas of the let-it-rip or herd immunity crowd. In the former, what we see appears to be President Trump's vision of letting the virus, quote, wash over and eventually disappear, end quote, to achieve herd immunity, which in some studies range from a low of 15% to a high of 80%. The cost here is obviously in countless lives lost and much pain and suffering. So with that rather dark assessment, though I would say sober assessment, Nick, why don't you kick it off? Well, there's so much to unpack there. Just in terms of where we are with the numbers, I think most folks would have probably predicted nothing of the sort. We've seen just an extraordinary acceleration. And, you know, I know this program and certainly, you know, both of you as colleagues have talked about uh, the discriminatory nature of the virus. And I'm about to say something a little bit inflammatory and say it's, it is not indiscriminate in its attack. Now, that's not to say that there aren't populations affected, but it really doesn't care who you are, where you come from, I, none of that it's actually a pretty effective tool. And some of the reasoning behind that appears to be the fact that it affects the upper respiratory tract as well as the lower respiratory tract. And unlike SARS, which killed a fair number of people, it was stopped because its ability to shed was linked very closely with symptoms so we could identify people. The major challenge we appear to be having is to identify people that are shedding and spreading the disease 
because they have no symptoms or they're pre-symptomatic or in some cases we're not sure what that percentage is but it's certainly high are asymptomatic so unfortunately it's spreading like wildfire and unless you take a very rigorous approach like some countries have done and shut things down and follow the three things that we have in our tool set which is wear a face covering physically distance and wash or carry out proper hygiene, we're not going to win. We're just going to continue this cycle. So unfortunately, I'm, I'm not hopeful because we don't seem to have the leadership to drive that. And that's what it requires at a federal level. The idea that this is 51 different countries that all have different approaches to this, I've got to say as the immigrant here, seems a little bit challenging, questionable, however you want to place it. And I respect all the federal nature and you know, people's freedoms. But ultimately, we've seen this movie before. And those people that interact with me will know that the 1918 pandemic is essentially a, you could read everything from that and say I was reading it in 2020 because we learned, understood and demonstrated all the things that work. And that was with a different virus that had slightly different characteristics, but many of the same. Nick, as you pointed out, while the virus itself is indiscriminate in terms of its ability to infect individuals, those that are most vulnerable are those in the lower socioeconomic groups who have to go to work, who live in more packed in communities or even homes or housing structures. And they're being exposed at a much greater rate, obviously infected at a greater rate and suffering at a greater rate. And as we focused on in the show over the last couple of months, this whole issue of health disparities is clearly being pointed to and pointed out in, the, in this COVID epidemic and how it's impacting those communities. And as you said, there are simple things that we can do for this, but while the, the processes and the, and the three simple ideas of social distancing, wearing a mask and, and proper hand washing and hygiene are critical, how you implement those kinds of approaches within an opening of your, comp- of your businesses or your restaurants or your corporations is where we've seen it struggle, obviously, in those states that have chosen to open up more rapidly than others and what they've allowed to open. And I think, you know, as we've talked about and worked on for a long time, that's an area we've really tried to focus on is how do you help these companies make those kinds of decisions and open up in a safer manner. Obviously, it's about risk and you can't reduce the risk to zero. And, and, you know, it's important to note when I say that it is indiscriminate, I am absolutely acknowledging there is no question disproportionately affecting people, let's be clear. But as a virus, it doesn't sit there and say, "Mm, I'm going to attack it. It's a function of what we've done. And in fact, all it did was expose something that existed already, just in a much more severe form. So, you know, in that sense, it's a good thing because we've opened the kimono and people are going, wow, really? It's that bad? That's a (laughs) great point. Oh my God. But you're right, Fred. I mean, the, the, the challenge of reopening and, and here's what really strikes me over and over again is that the science is not clear. And, you know, we continue to chase information and make the best possible decisions. But the idea that you can do so in isolation or by going to some site and reading a study is quite frankly, very, very challenging for me to accept. And I see an awful lot of this. In fact, I posted recently on this very topic. There is this infodemic of snake oil that exists and you need a good guide, somebody to take you through 
this whole process and tease out and help you understand the difference between good information and bad information or information that's not fully baked yet. So that's where we really focus on providing that. And I spend, and, and I counted it up just recently, over 60 peer-reviewed papers that I've consumed in the last month or so. And that's a lot of material. And I read it hopefully with at least some level of critical eye to be able to apply some level of you know, discernment from appropriate or inappropriate. So um, you know, that's one piece of it. But I think the strength of it is the combination. And you know, so I bring the clinical side and everybody focuses on that, but there's much more to it. And you have a huge contribution in all of this as well, right? Well, I appreciate that. And obviously, you know, we're working together on this and working with some others on, on, on it, and whether it's with universities or other companies or our online program. And it really is about synthesizing the data. The amazing thing to see is, you know, we're updating this all the time. As you said, you went through 60 peer-reviewed articles. I can't imagine how many from the start of this thing. <laughs> right. Because because it's changing. It was a novel virus. It was new. We learn all the time. And now... There was a big focus early on what cleaning and hand hygiene and don't touch anything. And obviously we're beginning to recognize now the issues you've raised about droplets and aerosols. And so changing the nature of our understanding and the nature of our approach and how you then reopen in that type of an environment. Let me ask you this, Nick. So where is the science principally unsettled? Where, where do you think the tender underbelly exists here in terms of the guidance that can be uh, responsibly provided? Well, I, I mean, just take the aerosolization. That's really something that shifted relatively recently. I think very early on, we said droplet versus aerosols. And, you know, there's lots of confusion. I just saw a graphic that quite frankly didn't help me at all. So I, I'm struggling that it's going to help others. But it, let me try and break it down. It, it, droplets, larger size, and therefore gravity takes hold and they drop to the floor quicker and therefore don't spread in the air. Aerosols, smaller size, and you, you can argue what that number is, because they're smaller, they dry out in the air very quickly, and they behave like the leaf that floats past you in a gentle breeze when you're outdoors. And you see it just keeps on lifting. It's as if there's a magical transmission of this leaf. And that's what happens with aerosols, and that's why that's significant, because now suddenly if those particles are out there, instead of falling to the ground within that sort of six feet circle around people, they're potentially going further and hanging around for longer because they sort of float. That's a huge change. So what do you do with that? Well, appropriately, masks remain an extraordinarily important part, but not the only part. It starts to change our thinking about indoor and outdoor and ventilation. Case in point, and you know, here's one of the things, and I know Fred was the one that sort of highlighted this, so I'm, I'm pulling from his insight. But as he rightly pointed out, the study in South Korea at the call center showed us this data some time back. Because what did we see in the transmission? It was all localized based on ventilation. Even on the other side of that floor where they had call center, they didn't see the cases. And they didn't see it in the building with all the people going in and out of the elevators. Well, that was all aerosolization as opposed to droplet spread. 
as we look back at it in hindsight. Hindsight's always 2020, or at least it is in my experience. So that's one of the primary things. Let me pick another that's a, a hot topic for me, which is hydroxychloroquinone. No, it doesn't work. It is not treating successfully. It has side effects. I personally have experienced those side effects in my family because I lived in malarial countries and we took that and I can point to those side effects and I can tell you, you don't want them, number one. Number two, we've done some extensive studies and in fairness, it may still prove to have some effect, but it's certainly not showing anything. You go, wow, I gotta take this. And the piece that I keep hearing is, oh, just take it in case, so a preventative measure. I, I connect with Fred and I've got COVID-19 or I discover it. Fred takes hydroxychloroquinone because that prevents him from getting the disease. Well, the data doesn't show it. Now, they're still carrying out the studies and we may show that there's some effect, but it's certainly not a big effect. And it's not something that should be done in isolation and turn it into the toilet paper of drugs. And suddenly there's none available for those that really need it. Let me ask you another question. So what's emerging now data printed in academic journals is that there's, uh, for instance, in Australia, they were very aggressive in a containment campaign. They had parabolic rise and they had systemic reductions down to the pre-infection baseline. And now they're going back into a parabolic second wave that exceeds the first wave. So there's some saying that if herd immunity is as low as 15%, there's some evidence for that, where that may be happening based on seroprevalence uh, surveys. Some are saying, you know, the cost of this thing is to let it rip and yes, they're going to be uh, 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 vulnerable, at-risk populations, but by and large, the traditional, and I'm a public health guy, all right? So the traditional blocking and tacking of public health mitigation and containment strategies is not advisable, that this virus is going to have its way. The cost is in lives, for which there's just incredibly high statistical calculations, but it's the only way that we're going to reach herd immunity for a disease that seems to have its way. First of all, is it really a second wave? And, you know, what does the second wave mean? That's typically in a different season. Is it a different season for Australia? Don't know. You know, there's some information floating around regards to the genetic drift and whether you can have a vaccine. And again, all unsettled science. So it's very hard to sort of focus in and answer that very specifically. But what do we know about this? Well, we know that if you have an exposure of any virus based on the spreadability, we can calculate what that required herd immunity percentage is. I don't think I've seen a single virus ever that has herd immunities at 15%. It's just not the case. And this is behaving more like, I hesitate to say measles, because we all know that's highly infectious and it's not at that end of R18 or whatever it is for for the spreadability, but it's certainly, it spreads pretty easily or we've not managed to control it. And the, the herd immunity requirement for measles is really high for all the reasons that are obvious. If, if you don't have enough people that have immunity, then it just gets distributed. So unless it has a very low R0, which I don't think I've seen, it's certainly, I want to say between two and three, maybe it's one and three. I'm, I, I, and you know, I'm not the expert to define that. I try and tease that out. That requires a herd immunity far above 15%. So that just seems wrong. But to your other point, 
Here's what I would say. And, you know, will I be proud of what I did in relation to this? Because my children and their children are going to be talking about this event for years to come in the same way that we did about the pandemic and the, you know, the, the influenza pandemic of uh, the, the 1918. And, you know, I, I'm going to channel my inner Britishness and quote Queen Elizabeth, who got on public radio and said, you know, I hope in years to come, everyone will be able to take pride in how they responded to this challenge and saying, uh, I don't care. Let's just let a bunch of people die. Oh, by the way, it's all the people that are less fortunate. All the things that you've described doesn't seem like a really good strategy. And I recognize there is lots of people that are hurting really badly with economic challenges and, you know, shutting things down. We have to take care of that. And it's possible to do so. There are methods to do this but it doesn't require having, you know, essentially sacrificial lands. Is that what we're saying? I mean, that's what it sounds like to me. And if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Pop Health Week. My guests are Fred Goldstein, president of Accountable Health LLC, a Jacksonville, Florida-based consulting firm and co-founder and lead co-host at Pop Health Week, and Nick Vanderhayden, MD, a.k.a. Dr. Nick, Managing Director of Incremental Healthcare. And I'm going to flip that on its head a little bit, and I think you're right on target. So look at Florida now. We had this reopening, and it exploded pretty much. You know, so you watch that curve go up like a rocket. I think we hit a high of 15,000 one day. We're down 10. We're down to 10,000, 9,000. Places are still open, but what did we do? We, we closed the places that were high risk. We mm. closed the bars. We closed those kinds of events. We said, distance yourself a little bit more. By the way, wear a mask. And so the good news is you can actually see the impact of that even here in Florida. The numbers are down because we changed some things. Can we reopen the bars again? I don't know yet. Not yet. But, but right, clearly not now. And so then you begin to say, okay, so if this is the way the, this is going to work, how do, we, how do we create a maximum economic capability within this framework? Right. How do, we, how do we do that? How do we get people to reopen appropriately? Are there ways that we can safely open a school? Maybe in some communities there aren't because the infection rate is too high or something like that. But in other communities, maybe there are ways with spacing and different schedules and other things that we can actually do that. And that's what we need to figure out. We're getting better answers around that. And that's where we need to go with it. And that's part of what we're trying to do with many of the the folks that we're working with is to essentially come up with those methods, concepts that guide you through this process to say, no, this is the the way that you can do it. Here are the risks. There's, you know, this is another thing that drives me nuts. It is impossible to drive out all risk. It's just not possible. So how do you minimize it? And, you know, I'll, I'll quote one of our colleagues who talks about the funnel. Reduce the number of people in the funnel so that you reduce the risk of exposure. That's the smart thing to do, but it's not easy to do. And it's so dependent on your local circumstance. And by the way, this is not forever. Will this virus go away? Absolutely not, in my view. I could be wrong, but I just don't think so. But will it be the significant thing forever? Absolutely not. We have over 150 things going on targeted at treating this disease. That's more than anything on 
any other disease at any other point. More than 70 vaccine trials, and I saw three or four this week that are publishing really positive results. So I think we're seeing that plus treatments, plus you know all these other things. There's real hope here, but apply it and apply science and thinking, but do so thoughtfully based on a balance of the risks and the information and the local status of things that are going on in your community. Let me ask you this, and I want to clarify one thing. I am not an advocate of the let it rip crowd, okay? We knew that. Okay. I, I, want, I didn't think that for one second. You were posting what was going on. Okay. I, I, so, I was the same. Yeah. Yeah. There is a cost to lives, and it's not just financial. But let's talk about what you're doing. Since the two of you enterprising souls have launched a, a service now, I think it's in the uh, safe reopening genre. Uh, talk about that. What are you doing? Well, so, I, you know, I guess almost a natural pivot uh, to, you know, a requirement that I certainly saw in part because as I watched this unfold in the very early days, I was just buried under an avalanche of questions. People look to me because I have an MD after my name. So there's some level of expectation of intelligence. But just to be clear, having an MD doesn't necessarily equate to having intelligent opinions, as is demonstrated by some folks online, truly (laughs) astounding. But what it was clear to me was there was a desperate need for guidance and counsel based on the latest information. And you can go to the CDC, WHO, they're really the baseline, if that, and they're not always up to speed. They take a little bit of time. And what we've put together is both a a subscription level type service, a training course that allows you to bring people up to speed. It's been updated. I mean, the, the, the number of updates to this really demonstrate the fast moving nature of this. I can't believe how many versions that we've got. So constantly updated with the latest information, keeping your employees up to date, because there's nothing worse than just being given a list and said, do this, if you don't understand the reason. So explaining all of that, and then putting it in the context of the individual business or organization so that you can apply the best possible understanding at the time. And we've got a number of clients, a lot of it's focused on education at the moment because we're in that sort of cycle of we're, we're trying to open or, or bring kids back to school, colleges and so forth, and people want to do it as safely as possible. And certainly I, as a parent, want my, my children to be going back to a safe environment. Are yes. you dealing with the schools or is this general business? No, it's the schools and, and colleges, in, in fact, as well. And, you know, some of the, it's interesting, you know, wide range of experiences, uh, everything from so, some months ago that folks were really planning that I think, you know, just really grabbed this particular issue and said, we're going to deal with it and, you know, faced it head on to some folks who come to the party a little bit later in the process and are thinking, wow, this is I, we, we better get on. And, you know, that creates a little bit of pressure. <laughs> Absolutely. And so, yeah, we have a deeper consulting role that we can provide to companies and, and businesses. And then, as we said, we have this online platform. Really, we built that for smaller companies that we felt would not have the access to resources. And this is a way for them to inexpensively both use the online program as well as get some hours from us if they'd like. And we can assist them talking through their specific issues all the way to really deep integrations with companies over a number of months as they think through the broad spectrum of issues that they face and trying to reopen in a safer way. 
So these are learning modules and available online? The online ones are, yes. And, and, uh, and as he said, we're, we're updating those all the time. I update, put an update up this morning and, and reloaded the site. And, um, you know, it goes through the key areas we think that people need to understand so they can go beyond just the basics of I need to wear a mask, the CDC says I need to distance, to really think through their unique situation, whether they're a, a call center or a restaurant or even somebody going into somebody's home. And how do you do that? There's so many variations on a theme. And I think one of the things that uh, certainly the clients we've had really value is the opportunity to ask a question of a group of individuals that come with a variety of insights and experiences that has tremendous depth, thanks to the broad nature of the background of the individuals that have a different lens. You know, I have my own lens and I always put the sort of clinical hat on, but I also pull on a technology hat because we've looked at apps and, you know, should you trace people and what about geolocation and gosh, you know, I could track you with cameras and then we know and we'll do, and you know, so there's, there's validity in a lot of the experiences that I think we can bring to this. Plus I think a, a, an enormous appetite for the absorption of information and teasing out fact from fiction and also you know settled science versus uncertain science and explaining that because a lot of the decisions are not ours they're ours to help guide people and say you need to make it but here are the pros and cons for those who may have an interest how do they get in touch with you you can go to safehealthywork.com as one website and the other one is safehealthywork.thinkific.com and that's where the course is but the first site will lead you to the website that explains our services and goes through that. So any concluding thoughts? Let me conclude by saying that I see this as an opportunity, first of all, to create a better world that we all inhabit and everybody gets a fair sort of crack of opportunity and experience in a world that has been very unjust to many groups and populations. So it's exposed a lot of things that I think we have the opportunity to fix. I forget who said originally that, you know, don't let a crisis go to waste. It doesn't matter, but I think, you know, the principle is correct. The other thing that I always like to finish with is I'm extraordinarily hopeful about this. As I said uh, during the conversation, the extent of the science and focus and the coming together excluding some of the bad actors and folks that you know are using this for political purposes as an example so follow the science not the politics is just fantastic and the idea that this is going to just continue on in the same way that the 1918 pandemic did just doesn't fit with where we are in terms of the application. As I said, over 150 different approaches. And if, if I could give you a visual, imagine the plumber that comes in with one spanner. Well, actually he had three spanners. He had a spanner, a screwdriver and a something. And that was physical distancing, um, face coverings and uh, good hygiene. And we're going to pour in another 150. Well, let's take 50% of them, 75 new tools into his toolbox. He's going to get a lot better at fixing and treating those things. And that's exactly what's going to happen. And it's happening relatively quickly, just in terms of testing. I think we'll see at point of care testing, fast, rapid testing, the pregnancy kit testing of COVID-19, which is essential, albeit imperfect because we don't all present with uh, virus when we're already infected, but you know, it's part of a 
portfolio of things that will approach and it will give us a reasonable crack at getting over this. Well, thanks, guys. So that is the last word on today's broadcast. I want to thank Fred Goldstein, president of Accountable Health, LLC, a Jacksonville, Florida-based consulting firm and co-founder and lead co-host at Pop Health Week, and Nick Vanderhayden, MD, a.k.a. Dr. Nick, the managing director of Incremental Healthcare for their time and collective wisdom shared today. For more information on Fred and Dr. Nick's work in this space, do follow them on Twitter via at FS Goldstein and at DR Dr. Nick, the number one, respectively. And for more information on their work in the safe reopening space, go to www.safehealthywork.com. And do follow me on Twitter as well via at 2HealthGuru for Pop Health Week. My colleagues, Fred Goldstein and Dr. Nick and Health Innovation Media, this is Greg Masters saying, please stay safe, everyone. We are in this together and we will get through this only if we toe the line on social distancing, proper hygiene, and by all means, do wear those masks when in public. Bye now. Bye now.